0: Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, co-editor-in-chief of Variety. Today my two guests offer perspective on aspects of the broadcasting business that we haven't covered closely on this podcast. Paula Kerger, president of PBS, discusses the mission of public broadcasting and why it still matters in a world awash in content. Neil Saban, vice chairman of Chicago-based Weigel Broadcasting, explains how a family-run company with a handful of stations wound up being a pioneer in the multicast network arena. With channels like MeTV, Weigel has proven that reruns of Bonanza and Perry Mason can still pack them in.
1: What exactly are the duties of being a member of the wedding party?
2: All that plus so much more.
1: Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Grown Up Stuff. as the number one audio company iheartmedia gives you access to all every audience live conversations trusted influencers and the insights and data you need to grow iheartmedia is your access company go to iheartresults.com for more check the back seat check the back seat all right come here check the back
0: seat gets in your head right Paula Kerger, President and CEO of PBS. Thank you so much for joining me today.
3: Thank you for being with me.
0: Paula, you've been the head of PBS for going on 15 years now, and I can imagine that that's never been a cushy gig. It's, PBS is always, in in terms of its funding and the, and the support that it receives from the federal government and from the public, there have been, you know, many ups and downs. I'm, I'm sure you knew going into the job that that was was going to be part of it. I also have to believe that the last 12 months or so have been probably among the most, some of the most challenging that you faced in running the nation's non-commercial public broadcasting network. Let me just start by asking you, how has PBS at the national level and what are you seeing from the grassroots of the affiliates, how has PBS fared in the COVID crisis?
3: Yeah, it's, uh, Look, a lot has changed in the fifteen years that I've been in this job. You know, as you look across the media landscape, uh, but this last year has been extraordinary. I guess that's the best way to describe it. And everyone I think you talk to would probably say the same thing. But in an, a very odd way, I feel like this has been probably the most important year for PBS, and that's because I think so much of what we've been able to do this this last year has been built on what has been a 50-year history of work that we've done across the country. So this past year, we had actually planned to celebrate our 50th anniversary. We were going to do the usual things one does, pull out old, um, you know, clips of people that have appeared on public television. We were signed on by Julia Child, so we had great <laughs> clips and so forth, but um but I think that, you know, it started actually pretty fast. So last February, I got a call from uh, Austin Butner, who you know, the superintendent of LA Unified, and he, they actually have right. a public television station, and he was anticipating that kids were going to be home. And he was particularly worried about kids that weren't going to have access to broadband. And he wondered if there was anything that we could do to help. They have a station with just a few employees, and So we got our LA station engaged and some Mm -hmm. other stations came together and uh, we run a service called Learning Media, which is a broadband service that delivers K-12 content directly uh, to, um, to computers. And we looked at how we could build something for broadcast as well, as well as amping up the service we provided through broadband. And we were off and running, you know, actually the LA model was then copied around the country. I think almost every state now has picked up some version of that. We were reaching about a million teachers a month before COVID and we went up, uh, I think initially went up to like three or 4 million and now it's stabilized. It's it's about 3 million uh, users a month. So I think the educational work has been significant. And because we have relationships in school systems across the country, remember we started as education television it was, uh, there was that obviously the news, this has been an important news year and people, I think, have hungered to look for places where they could find information they could trust. And so, um, you know, Judy Woodruff started doing the news out of her house and in front of that beautiful case right. as others did. And, uh, we had a amazing team, um, Michelle sender at the white house and, uh, Amina Navaz and Lisa Desjardins, who did amazing reporting on January 6th. so there was that. And then, can I there- ask you, Paula, about mm-hmm. on the education
0: initiative? Did that was that something that cost you resources? Was that, was that something that you had to to put some put funding into to make happen, or did, were you able to do it with existing we existing had, infrastructure?
3: We had a lot of the infrastructure already built, so my point of of being sort of ready. Um, we didn't have to suddenly create a whole new business. We had it, and so um, you know, we did spend a, some additional money to you know embellish the work that we already had underway. But we had a lot of it already done, and uh, and so that I you know that end has ended up being you know I think tr- tremendously important across across the country. And then, you know, obviously, in in the news space, we also have invested a little bit more in some of that news coverage because there was just so much that was happening, and and just being able to pivot from working out of a studio to working in all these remote uh, locations and and so forth. And then, you know, the the other thing is, we thought a lot about you know people at home and what are you what are people looking for? They're looking, they're looking to be entertained. They're looking to be reminded of. Uh, perhaps uh, aspects of our better selves. We, we brought some of Ken Burns' work back, beginning with baseball, when they delayed last year's baseball season. We, we rolled out a lot of Broadway and theater <laughs> and other stuff. And then George Floyd was murdered. And so we then quickly pivoted. And there, uh, our work over, frankly, decades, really came to the fore because we had a lot of content that we had produced Around race in America that we were able to bring forward, including Skipgate's recent project on reconstruction. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I feel like every step of the way we've moved. But look, we <laughs> we made a lot of stuff up on the fly. We went from an organization that worked in a largely office space to largely working remote, even some of our technical crew uh, who keep the entire interconnection going for the whole country. Um, some of those uh, staff members also started working remotely, so it wasn't just the the, um, the content that we continued to explore, you know, new opportunities, but we also looked very hard at uh, the technology itself and how we would be able to support it, working at it at a distance. How
0: have the events and all this activity and people's, you know, spending more time with PBS and really recognizing has that translated into? a boost in fundraising at the either institutional level or at the or at the individual donor level.
3: I'll particularly uh, comment on, you know, because you asked me a few minutes ago about our stations, which I realize I I didn't fully answer. And uh, so I can tell you a bit about, you know, I, I described what happened in L.A. and obviously that's through our local stations and then we helped to enable that work across the country but I think for, for our stations, uh, being able to um, uh, benefit from the fact that people are watching a lot of PBS over the course of this last year. So many of them actually have seen an increase in the number of people who've become members of, the sta- of their stations. Corporate money, uh, sponsorship money has, has been harder and for any station that has been raising money around events and so forth, that also has been harder. So I would say it's a it's a little bit of a mixed story, but I, look, a year ago, I was really prepared that things were just gonna go off the cliff. And that, mm-hmm. um, because, I mean, who knew where all of this was, was heading? And um, we were very much focused on a few things, is just making sure that we were delivering all the core activities that stations really needed. We um, obviously were looking very carefully at our pipeline and we do work well in advance. So we were in, a, again, in a different position than some of the networks who got caught scrambling a bit to fill broadcasts, right. so we had a pretty rich pipeline. It's not to say we weren't impacted, and we were And some of our programs, like Call the Midwife, which is a, um, a drama presentation has gotten pushed out, Right. and it's Roadshow, did not tape this past year because they they you know they couldn't and so right. um, and so there were there are definitely series that have been impacted but I think for the most part we've had a pretty strong season of of fresh content and the stations I think part of it is because of all the education work they were doing part of it because people were watching and we had really strong content um, knock on wood it's been a it's been a reasonably good year not for all stations some really have have had a deeper impact. Some areas that were affected deeper than others clearly have. But I think for the most part, you know, sort of fingers crossed. We've never been awash in funding at public <laughs> Right. <laughs> so I don't want anyone to think the dollar's just pouring right in. Right, But, right. Uh, but it's very different than I thought was going to be the case that uh, we were going to look at stations who were going to face existential you know, crises moving forward. I think we're I think we're in a in a reasonably good place now. But obviously, we're going to be looking carefully at as we look ahead.
0: What is your total affiliate base right now? Is it about two hundred stations or so? You no,
3: know, we have uh, three hundred thirty five stations. So it's a lot. It's a lot, and you know, they serve everything from you know New York City to Bemidji, Minnesota. And by the way, the Bemidji station actually does a light a uh, uh, nightly newscast. So it's I bet uh, they have a big share. <laughs> <laughs> they do actually. They have a very big share, and it's uh, and I, I I haven't visited every station, but I've vi- visited most. I've been uh, right before the lockdown. I visited my fiftieth state, uh-huh. and uh, you know it's uh, it's amazing when you see some of these operations. You know, I, again, I point to the news hour. I mean the the the, um, the, co- the coverage they were able to do with a very small staff. Mm -hmm. is, uh, is, is, is truly extraordinary. But it's, it's, so I always say we punch well above our weight.
0: (laughs) Let me ask you, has it, you know, at a time of, of, you know, incredible growth of programming platforms and competition for content costs rising, has that programming pipeline that, that PBS has always been so good at planning and planning far out with co-productions and things, you know, coming from all sorts of, all sorts of sources, not just in the U.S., but is that programming pip- pipeline squeezed now because there is so much demand so, for global content?
3: There, um, in, in some areas it is tougher, uh, drama is tougher, uh, but we seem to find drama that, um, you know, that people really love and, you know, all creatures great and small This um, this winter. Which turned out to be. I watched it like a regular viewer. I, you know, I, I I watched it on Sundays and just it just carried me through the long dark winter. Um, and and it was cold in in here. I, unlike LA, I know. <laughs> maybe it wouldn't have had the same significance for you. But here in Virginia. Uh, yeah, I'm in Virginia, so mm-hmm. yeah, it was cold winter. We had a lot of snow, and so uh, and so all all creatures are great and small. But so I think I would say that the drama pipeline was a little harder. It created opportunities, so we had a couple things fall out. We just picked up a series called Atlantic Crossing, which uh, which actually started running last week and has done uh, has done reasonably has done very well actually. It's uh, um, it's uh, it's an unknown untold story of. Um, um, you know, a World War II story um, with Churchill. And, um, you know, so I, I think that um, there is a, um, you know, there, there is, there is complications there. I think in the, in the documentary space, it's interesting, because, you know, I I read article after article about this is really the golden age of documentaries. In many ways, it's true. Mm -hmm. A lot of great documentaries, we all watched the record number of documentaries that were submitted for Oscar consideration this year, um, and a lot of streamers in particular are picking up documentary, but a lot of them, you know, are now moving towards more you know, sort of the programming that, that drives off of current events like the HBO series um, on QAnon to right. uh, the, um, to crime and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, you know, again, we kind of sit by ourselves over here. So, you know, I'm just really interested in looking at ways that, you know, we can continue to expand stories, particularly stories that aren't, that aren't often told or often well told. Because ultimately, I don't have to um, adhere to the same pressures that a commercial organization will in terms of audience size. I can take a little bit more risk and bring stories forward that, you know, are just important stories. So, I, you know, I would say that, um, you know, for us, the interesting question is, is all the platforms and which ones we should pursue. We did a deal last year with YouTube TV, which has turned out to be good. Brand matters. And so, um, and as you said a little while ago, people are, you know, people understand the PBS brand, they understand what it means. And uh, a lot of our stations have more aggressively adopted either the PBS logo or the PBS name as part of their uh, their station itself. And so I think that um, that is all you know. Really, redounds to the good, particularly as you're looking at distributing on multiple platforms, broadcast, obviously cable, satellite, but also um, digital streamed. Um, you know, places like YouTube. It's a it's a constant question for us of where are our viewers, where would they expect to see our content? How do we put it there? But more importantly, how do we put our stations there with content branded? For them, so that it's clear that not only are you getting great work by Ken Burns, but if there's companion pieces that the stations have also produced, it's all there, you know, for you to see and appreciate.
0: Do you get any benefit? Um, have you seen any benefit in terms of the rise of the digital MVPDs, the YouTube TVs, the Roku's, the the Hulu Live? Do those? Do you get any kind of fees for carriage when you're on those platforms? I know in the traditional world, it's often governed by what is known by the wonky term of must carry in FCC parlance, and you get carriage but not fees. Is that we the same in the digital that, world?
3: We get carriage and not fees. We have on some of the, uh, some of our part uh, partners have helped us defray some of our costs of getting our stuff up, uh, but we're really, it's not, uh, it's not a revenue stream for us in the same way that it would be you know, for commercial organization. And we're also careful around the advertising part for, you know, some of the streamers that are ad supported. Although we have experimented, we have started experimenting with some older content just as a way to push our material out. Um, we have rights for some older content and not for others. And we're just, I'm just really interested in trying to hit people wherever they may be watching to just remind them of all the great content within PBS. Um, so, like everyone else, um, you know, we're just we're just. I don't think anyone's really figured this out. I think everyone is just trying a lot of, of, of different opportunities, and that's certainly what we're doing. And I'm I'm grateful to our stations because, um, you know, I you know, at the beginning of uh, of this really interesting media period that we're in you know i know that there were some that were very nervous about you know moving beyond a realm that they completely controlled which is what you had when you had a broadcast stick right. and, but you know they um, you know the stations really understand that for us to be in multiple places and to have our brand out there if we're if we're purposeful about it and and try to connect the dots back everyone everyone benefits so uh, so we've been spending a lot of time thinking through all of that
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you know, as I think I said in the beginning, it's the, the leading this organization has never been a never been a cushy job, and probably never been more more challenging than it has been in the last in the last bunch of months. Um, Paula, what would you say in your background? You've been CEO of PBS now for fifteen years. What would you say in your background, your work experience, or your life experience that best prepared you for the challenges that you have now as CEO?
3: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good question. I I think <laughs> I'm gonna answer it in a funny way. I I think in some ways, um, some of the things that that best prepared me to manage this organization have been, frankly, working for people who weren't such great managers because <laughs> you do learn more. I mean, I've had great mentors, so I don't mean to sound so flip about it. And I've sure, had sure. people that. I've continued to talk to over the years because we all keep running up against things we've never experienced before. Lord knows this year has been filled with those experiences. But, um, but I, I think that, you know, clear communication, um, frequent communication, which has certainly been important this year, um, is being able to listen well, but to make decisions and move. Um, you know, I mean, these are all aspects of leadership that I've not always found in people that I've worked for, and I know the impact that it had on me. And so I think that, you know, that's prepared me, uh, uh pretty well. I'm, I'm, I guess the other thing is, you know, just, just on a personal basis, I, I'm interested in a lot of things. I started out in college in pre-med. Because um, I was always interested in science, I failed organic chemistry. I took a lot of liberal arts classes. Panicked, I'd never graduate. Got a degree in business, but I always carried forward all these different interests. And I think that also is, I think, in, I think in a funny way that's helped me because I just have a lot of curiosity about a lot of things. So I know to ask a lot of questions. I also understand the scientific. Uh, method, and I, I know that you can actually land decisions and without full information. And so, I think all of those things actually, you know, came to came to the fore when I hit this job. It's interesting you've mentioned it now twice about when I, you know, this has never been an easy job. I remember when I was doing the first round of interviews when I was it was first announced that I had been appointed to this job. That somebody I interviewed with, and it was a radio interview. I just can't remember who it was like sort of likened it to walking into the gates of hell, which I thought was so bizarre. <laughs> so funny. And I said, well, I, 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 I'm not exactly sure that's what, you know, <laughs> will feel like, but anyway, I appreciate the, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, the question, but, um, what I, um, have thought about actually, as I have, uh, you know, have been in this job is that my first speech I gave was right around the time that that Apple announced they were going to sell episodes of Desperate Housewives for $1.99. Right. That that was a groundbreaking thing. And it just sounded so weird. Like who would spend $1.99 on an episode of Desperate Housewives? To I watch mean, on a tiny screen. To watch on a little screen, right? But it was the signal of how everything was going to change. And I think that, um, you know, if you just look at the arc of everything. I mean, someone gave me a Netflix subscription as I was moving from New York to Washington. And it was, it was the, you know, the DVDs, you know, so just in the arc of time that I've been in this job, it's the entire world has shifted. And I think that, you know, the, the, for me, you know, the other thing sort of in life experiences, you got to be willing to take risks and know that, you, you know, even if you can't ultimately predict what the outcome is going to be, that um, you're going to go on some path. And, you know, chances are you won't get killed in the process, and that you're going to learn something. This is what we learned from all the digital people, right, is that the internet way of iteration, rather than building perfection, and, and which is the, I think, the biggest sea change, in, again, in, in our business, is that, um, you know, you just have to keep you know, trying different things, but you can't be afraid. And I think that's the that's the other. I think really important theme and everything that we've tried to do is just let's take some let, let's take some risk. It's very hard for nonprofits to do that, by the way, right? Because you're always worried that you know someone's going to accuse you of wasting their money. But organizations don't grow unless you unless you fail some of the time, mm-hmm. and I think most people understand that.
0: Do you have a wish list or any any anything on your wish list for PBS or for that your kind of your cousin, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, from the new Biden administration?
3: Oh yeah, I mean I you know I think the thing that's um, that for me is is very exciting is that we have a teacher in the White House and uh, you know Jill Biden is a has been a big proponent of public broadcasting and and I think that you know, again, if you understand that we're built on this idea of educational television, that was the original concept, uh, a lot of what we do still ties into that. And so to have someone that is passionate about education is is hugely important. So, um, you know, we're a public-private partnership. That's what LBJ envisioned when he created PBS. And so to have a White House that really understands what that means, and and, you know, I'm, optimistic that you know we're on a stronger path right
0: now we'll take a short break now and be back with Weigel Broadcasting's Neil Saban hey everyone this is Molly and Matt and
1: we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts
2: it's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting
1: What exactly are the duties of being a member of the wedding party?
2: All that plus so much more.
1: Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Grown Up Stuff.
0: Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed
4: Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey!
0: We're back with weigel broadcasting's neil sabin neil has shepherded the growth of multicast networks that are now competing for ad dollars and eyeballs in the big leagues of broadcast tv neil i'd love to start by asking you you know more than a decade ago what was it about the opportunity that you saw what was it that made weigel such a pioneer in this space
4: i think Part of that is that Weigel is a family-owned entrepreneurial company that can move very quickly on ideas, whether those ideas are technology-based or programming content-based. We don't have a lot of people involved in the decision-making process, um, so we can move quickly. And we are, you know, a business that looks for ways where we can exploit opportunities. Being small, we can't do a lot of the things that bigger companies can do when they have the massive scale of you know covering 70% of the country, 60% of the country. But what we can do is look for areas of expansion that maybe those people haven't looked at yet, which is why I think we were one of the first to jump on this uh, sub-channel, uh, bandwidth opportunity. I, the uh, chairman, president of our company, Norm Shapiro, came into my office one day and I could still see him sitting on my couch saying, Neil, what if? What would you do if you had five television stations here in <laughs> Chicago? How would you program them? And he explained to me what the digital transition was going to mean for television stations. And I think to also answer your question, Cynthia, it is that in Chicago, we had more than one station. We have a very powerful low power that is uh, the transmitter and antenna are on top of Sears Tower along with our main channel in Chicago and covers the market beautifully. And we were doing at one point ethnic programming on that second channel and then um, started MeTV on that second channel as a Chicago only entity and it was doing well. So we were already kind of in the multicast business before multicast came along. Right. Uh, And then when the technology allowed us to put both of those signals on one channel, it was kind of a natural. And Mm -hmm. the, you know, the first thing we really wanted to do was meet TV, a classic TV channel. But, Many of the distributors, when I went to see them, they were, they were not enthusiastic because they, they didn't really understand what this was. And, and some of the initial first first people into the business, um, I think were not really professional broadcasters or people that had track records and credibility. So it took us a while. And I, I went to see all the syndicators and it took place at Enapte. And I finally uh, had a meeting with John, uh, JB, John Bryan at uh, MGM and said, hey, I want to buy some of your classic shows to do this. And he said, you know, Neil, everybody is coming to me talking about this. Why don't we just do it ourselves? And he's a, was an entrepreneurial kind of guy too, Right. And it's literally in that meeting at Napty when he said, why don't we do this ourselves? That's how this TV was, was formed, which was the first one, because MGM doesn't have a big classic TV show library. They have movie library. Right. So this TV was the first major, uh, majorly distributed DigiNet to come out. And it was mostly movies, cause that's what MGM had. But by doing that, it gave our company some more comfort and experience in making the huge uh, financial commitment that MeTV was. Yeah because I, I will tell you that when we started Me TV we we did it that in a way we said we were always going to be very credible. And what we actually did and and Norm Shapiro likes to say we really threw the dice on this one. We went and acquired all the programming on a national basis to start Me TV with the only affiliates being our own stations.
0: Can you talk about the pacing of like the Growth of these as businesses, as as the growth of viewership, the growth of advertising dollars, was it was it fast? Was it an uphill climb?
4: Um, Well, for us, it it was pretty rapid. In that, um, it started with direct response advertising, which is still as so many things
0: do in TV, (laughs) right?
4: And it's still a big core, uh, and more and more advertisers are using DR, as it's called, or hybrid DR which, which needs ratings. And, you know, you can't even tell when you see the commercials that it's really bought as DR because it looks like regular spot advertising, but they are buying it on a kind of a DR hybrid basis where you've got to have some ratings for them to be able to track it. So, but, but it was almost like they were looking for a place to go and and it, it was very um, opportunistic for the advertisers and for us. I mean, we were welcomed. In part, the advertisers used us, I'm sure, as leverage with the cable networks and syndication to say, "Look, I can get this for a lot less money than than that." And our rates of uh, you know they, they've gone up substantially. Obviously, MeTV and, and our other networks, um, you know, are quite successful and. You see all these other companies, like you mentioned, Cynthia, the big boys getting into this business and they they don't get into businesses that that they think aren't going to grow or aren't going to be successful. And um, what's happened of late and what was especially for MeTV, which has significant ratings, is that as cable and broadcast ratings have come down, the need to buy impressions and to get down what the agencies need to get down in terms of audience reach has gotten to the point where they need networks like MeTV to make their campaign successful because they can't get all of those rating points and impressions on cable anymore.
0: It really is a patchwork quilt these days. Yeah, of everything. And again, so interesting because if you look just on the surface, you would think, you know, all the projections for digital advertising, you know, double a high single digit double digits going out into the going out into the future you would think in that environment it'd be really hard to start a a tv channel a linear essentially won't say analog but a linear channel that is Mm -hmm. you know ad supported and is you know inevitably going to start small and and have to grow grow a viewer base you would think in that environment that there wouldn't be leftover advertising dollars for Diginets, but I think that, that it just underscores the power of TV, that you can when you turn on your set, you can basically find it. That the power of that is still pretty, pretty strong.
4: It is not a science project to watch me TV. <laughs> you do not need a password to watch me TV. <laughs> you do not get a bill to watch me TV. And and as you say, you know, people a lot smarter than me are starting Diginets left and right. So there must be something there that their analysts and their stock people are saying that they should be doing this. So um, yeah, it, it's, and, and you know, sometimes we all get caught up in the, I call it the emperor's new close, close yeah. syndrome. That we have to get on the bandwagon of 3.0. And we have to get on the bandwagon of streaming services and all that because that's what everybody's doing. But you know, Mon, Pa, whoever in Dayton, Ohio they're still watching traditional TV for most of the time that they're spending with their media. So there, there's a business there. And it may not be the sexiest, newest thing, but it works.
0: And MeTV is not it 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 is not it is not available for streaming or it is?
4: Um not now. No, no it's it's not it's not streamed. In the future, that could happen, but right now our ratings, our success, our business comes all off of traditional viewing.
0: Does the, you know, um, I guess it's hard, it's a little bit apples and oranges in terms of me TV's national rating versus like, you know, your, the ratings for your, your broadcast stations in Chicago or Milwaukee. Is it, I mean, is me TV, is that, is it getting that competitive to being like competitive with something distributed by a full, full blown, oh, yeah. you know, broadcast?
4: It, well, in Milwaukee, our me TV affiliate beats our independent, the CW, the MyNet. net, uh, and some days I on every day, every day in sign-on to sign off numbers. I mean, MeTV has about 26 million viewers a week, different viewers a week. We cum about 26 million. In daytime, uh, if you compare us against all cable networks from 9A to I think it is uh 6P, in all viewers, you know, two plus viewers, we're the number one entertainment choice. We beat every cable network but the newscasts, the news networks.
0: What are your workhorse shows right now? I know, I know you you change up the lineup, but right now, what are your workhorses?
4: Yeah, some of our some of our uh, Facebook critics want us to change up things a whole lot more, but you know, <laughs> you don't you don't fix what isn't broken. So <laughs> right. things like Andy Griffith, Mash, Harry Mason, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, they stay right where they are. Because they're, they're doing so well.
0: Thanks for listening. Be sure to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from listeners. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business.
2: Check the back seat, check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat.
0: Gets in your head, right? Good, because every year dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot, fast, and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA
4: and the Ad Council.